Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured. I have Jordan Daniel Wood on my show for a second time. We had a conversation. It's actually been a while back. Um, it was, mm -hmm. I think, maybe like half a year ago or something yeah. like that. And um, we had a really good conversation the first time, but there's still some topics and stuff that we had left unaddressed. And you're just so nice to talk to that. Um, uh, all the better, in my opinion. And before we got going, I wanted to say that you have started your own podcast with you and one of your friends called History and Dogma. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and say what uh, your goal for that uh, show is and um, what it's about? Yeah, sure. Thank, thank you. Uh, yeah, we only have one episode. I was telling Sam before the recording, uh, we have got many planned, but uh, life happens with both our fathers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's basic. So history and dogma. Now I have to say it's a little bit, the whole podcast is a little bit like, uh, sort of a Catholic it's, it's more directly speaking into some of the Catholic conversations going on right now, especially online discourse. But I do think it actually has pretty obvious wider ram ramifications. Um, you might say it's a podcast that's trying to bridge together things that are not usually seem, seem to be bridgeable. Like for example, history, like historical critical research, biblical scholarship, being responsible with the context of the text and all that, and dogma. I mean, there's there's lots of stuff out there of like like basically that says you got to choose one or the other. Also, that name history and dogma, it harkens back to the title of a small book by uh, a Catholic philosopher in the early 20th century called Maurice Blondel, when he's exactly addressing that. It was actually on the occasion of Alfred Loisy's book on the gospel and, you know, sort of promoting some of the, I still think, fairly well-received theses about how, you know, uh, Christ was expecting the imminent end of the world. That changes the way, you know, that we read all the Gospels. And and so Blondell writes this thing, essentially criticizing two sides. One is that we the, the historicists, like Loisy and others, who basically think dogma or what we can what we can apprehend of God's revelation is restricted to what we can apprehend through history historical research or on the other hand what he calls the extrinsicists or you might say the dogmatists who already have their prefabricated set of dogmas and teachings and doctrines that they 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 are committed to and they'll sort of force that in and cherry pick and so on and and so usually people one uh choose one track track or the other and blondell was already criticizing that is really not a fundamentally christian or in particular catholic way to think we're a podcast that tries to do so charles my co-host has a phd from the university of chicago in hebrew scriptures and ancient near east i'm a historical theologian like later church fathers and stuff so we're trying to like bring that together model a sort of we can speak across lines mm -hmm. sounds like a good duo if i only listened to podcasts for which i was the intended denominational audience my <laughs> listening diet would be a lot smaller than it is so yeah. uh, and, <laughs> and I'm I'm still amazed by the makeup of my audience, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So I I it, it's just um it's just weird how uh, different people find different things interesting and capturing yep. their attention. Yes, um, yes. I'm I'm actually tempted to ask you a little bit more about how you view the connection between history and dogma. I I had I had just given you a, a foretaste of some of the topics that I wanted to talk to you about, and this wasn't on it. But now that you brought it up, I'm like, uh, because I I recently made some some videos that were sort of poking at some Protestant YouTubers, being yeah. like, hey, Protestant YouTubers, 
you like to give the Catholics a hard time about the development, say, of various Marian dogmas or icon veneration or purgatory or what have you, and be like, look, these things developed over time. Here are the receipts and the dates. And uh, we can go back and see that this is not part of the early apostolic teaching. And I'm sort of like, well, hey there, Trinitarian Protestants. Right. Um, you know, this doctrine that you consider the most central part of your own faith, why don't you do check the receipts on that one? Yes. And, yes. Uh, and so that, that it's something that I've been wrestling a lot with. I tend mm -hmm. to lean in the direction of a sort of high view of apostolic authority and a um, somewhat take it or leave it a view of church history. And mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I couldn't I, I couldn't hold my beliefs with really anything that gave too much credence to creeds, so to speak. Right. Um, but I mean, I understand the various points back at that. Like, well, what about the canon? You know, how did where did that come from? How did that get mm -hmm. handed down to you? Why those particular set of books and not these other particular set of books and all those sorts of things? So, I, I mean, I, this is a topic that I wrestle with, too. So I'm wondering, how do you think about um Development of doctrine over time, the uh, authority of church magisteria, and all of those sorts of related questions. Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. In in so many ways, especially since Vatican I in the Catholic world, that is the question. I mean, people often say about Vatican II that the issue below all the issues was development of doctrine, <laughs> and uh, and for obvious reasons, right? It's um, what Vatican II says about religious liberty or about uh, no salvation outside the church, or about, I mean, a whole host of things. Uh, you can, and people do, right? I mean, there are like, what I would sort of call magisterial fundamentalists, although, you know, they, they, they well, they're fundamentalists because they draw a certain line, like for them, the pure and correct magisterium maybe terminates at a certain point in history or with a certain figure, but they can go back and there are objective, like, like what you just said about Trinitarianism, right? It's the same, same thing. Like, like you can go back and you can find, um, you can go back and read what, you know, the bulls of uh, Pope Nicholas V, who is going to say some pretty alarming things about the licitness or the uh, permissibility of holding slaves mm -hmm. and sort of giving Portugal the green light to go ahead and do that in West Africa and, and, and plunder those people. Because, you know, after all, I mean, one reason he gives was something like, you know, because the rise of Islam is sort of a concern. So <laughs> almost like better to take them slaves than let them be free and, and you know, and convert mm -hmm. to these other whatever. But then you read what Leo the Thirteenth says in the 19th century, who says it's who, who rules it out as like almost an intrinsic evil. It's a fundamental offense against human dignity. I mean, so. So what one of the things that I've been saying and like on that podcast we've been saying is kind of just being honest and and i think you would agree with this even if you you uh you know you land differently elsewhere but to be a catholic and like you said really even to be a protestant or other but you you are already committed to development of doctrine mm -hmm. like that's like that's a part of the whole thing what i've what we found disconcerting and partly why we started that podcast was that you know like i grew up in a tradition that was very much anti-credal it was no creed but Christ, you know, it was mm -hmm. uh, just the Bible. It was, there were all kinds of like, kind of, I think, similar to some of the circles you've, you've run in before, in your life. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I found some really dissatisfactory things about that. One of which was what I kind of took to be an almost uh, um, 
almost like a, a such a dependency and a sort of decline narrative. Like we're going to mark a certain point in history and everything or, or, or the main things after that have basically declined and deteriorated. Lucky for us, you know, say 1500 years later, we kind of rediscovered the truth. And one of the things that did for me about uh, is to say, well, where was God in all this time? Mm-hmm. Like, well, mm-hmm. what is he? What is he doing? Like, how is he just gone or whatever? And again, it's not to baptize everything that happens in history. There's certainly errors and mistakes are made. Um, and God's judgment is a form of God's presence. So, so it's not as if God has to always be ratifying everything. But um, yeah. Uh, but then, but then moving to the Catholic world as I did nine years ago or whatever. Um, I've been pretty disconcerted to see these sort of kind of pop apologetic stuff online. Exactly along the lines of some of the stuff you said. So what I, what I, so you either, you know, again, people usually choose the uh, dogmatist might just say apologetics mindset and they're very selective with the history they choose. They've got these preset conclusions. They're going to prove it to you or people are kind of the, I think we said in the podcast, like, and, and this is often a sort of a stereotype, right? Of certain kinds of biblical scholars or whatever. They're kind of like, you know, party poopers you know <laughs> the mm-hmm. ones who just the ones who just say oh you think the bible teaches that well watch this i'm going to show you that the bible is yeah. actually very contradictory there's a plurality of you know there is no biblical view yeah. and then they just kind of sit you there and then they might make some kind of gesture about how like well you know and that's good for us because somehow we're always searching it, it, it puts us in tension or always keep yeah, us on yeah. Our toes or, yeah yeah it's like yeah. or like it reflects back to you the sort of like mess of human existence and as i said on the podcast i'm like i don't really need that to see the mess <laughs> of human. like like if god's big plan was like hey here's a mirror like okay well we made mirrors like human beings who look in the mirror all the time but um so anyway, so my the basic thing, probably not going to surprise you, the way that I think, the only way I think I can be committed to development of doctrine, which I do believe I am committed to that just by just by being a Trinitarian for one thing, accepting mm-hmm. the canon for another, accepting the councils for another, you know, and so forth, all the way up through Vatican II. Um, that's, by the way, often misunderstood. I think so many, especially converts from an evangelical background to, to Catholicism or Orthodoxy or whatever, they want it to be a new version of biblical fundamentalism. And they want it to be that just because you have another layer with mm-hmm. way more text that stretches more centuries, oh, that's where all the answers have become have become clear, right? And so now you can just be a fundamentalist about the magisterium and what the church mm-hmm. teaches. Of course, except until you get a pope like Pope Francis you don't like, and now you're a you know, all of a sudden, now you're all Put about criticizing. Yeah. yeah, you're all about criticizing the Pope and maybe even questioning his orthodoxy. So it does turn out as will like, so, so you left your Protestantism behind, did you? Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's the thing. It's like it, like you'll be you know as familiar or more familiar than most people. It turns out, um, you know, everybody actually has to interpret at some point. <laughs> no matter what it is you're claiming absolute authority for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, my quick answer, because that was just all context stuff. What I think is given the impasse between a sort of historic, you might say historicist, just critical edge all the time, which I believe is necessary, by the way, I don't think we can run from that. I don't think we do any service to ourselves or others to pretend that these things don't exist. They do. And anyone who's thought on their own, but also taught students, or if you've probably had friends that they believed a very certain like fundamentalist view of, say, the inspiration of scripture or whatever, you know, that's a house of cards and that that'll fall. So I am not, a. I think 
welcome the critical scholarship. We can be critical of the critical scholarship. But we, so I'm not I'm not against historical work at all. That's why I've got Charles, the other guy, because he that's mostly what he does. Uh, but then the the other uh, rather than be that or a dogmatist that sort of floats free of history or just make these vague appeals to some authority as it's convenient. Um, I think it's just best to say this. Now, here's here's where I might be a little different. I'm more like Blondell. And I want to make a little more theological heft to this general hermeneutical predicament. I think that the that the Christian doctrine of the incarnation itself um, both necessitates development, but also makes it impossible to come up with a list of a priori criteria that you can predict what the next development will be or which ones are correct. We're always looking back. We're always sort of, you know to quote Hegel, right? The Owl of Minerva sets at you know, dusk. You're always looking back as the day is sort of closing and then sort of unpacking it or making sense of it. And so the incarnation for three reasons, I think, is the only way that history and dogma can come together. They cannot come together on the abstract level, like or, the, or you might say the methodological level. They are just two different methods. I don't see how they're easily reconcilable on the level of method. So that means that the only way they're reconcilable is in the content of the truth that both are trying to get at in their own partial ways. And for me, that's Christ, which also means he's a person, not simply a proposition or an idea. And he's not an objective truth in the sense of, oh, I figured out this highest truth or he did and gave it to us. He says, I am the truth. So now the truth of the world and of God isn't just a fact, but it's a talking, a speaking person. It's a spirit. You know, tr- you know John 4, spirit, this, the, the worship of him in spirit mm-hmm. and truth. The spirit is truth. So, um, so then I think that generates the development stuff. Because just as we sort of pour forth sonnets and poetry, and we can't adequately describe even just somebody we love in this life, how much less will any particular formula capture the truth that God himself is? Um, so, so that's a pretty massive, so that's a generator of, of development and the necessity to constantly reassess, reinterpret, receive in that sense, active reception. Um, and so I think they can only come together in the act of receiving. Like, I don't think there's an app. I don't know how else to say it. There's no, I don't have a good, like, Here's the formula, or here's five criteria. If you apply these to any particular case, you'll be able to get the right answer. I think that already disrespects or ignores the nature of the truth as the person. And then also an infinite person, the person who is who is accessible in the church, sure, but in all of creation throughout all of time. And so that also generates that need to constantly, you know, abyss crying out to abyss. And so uh, history and dogma are not abstractly reconcilable. What, but, th- what, but what's interesting is you have to interpret that very failure. And so, the, so most of them will choose one side or the other and then make it absolute. Well, this is it. It's just you receive the dogma from on high and you accept it or you don't. Or, well, no, this is it. You receive the fruit of historical scholarship when you accept it or, you know, you're anti-thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think both of those are just absolutizing their own perspective, kind of regardless of the content of Christology itself. Mm-hmm. And I think given a certain, so there's a circularity to this, and I know that I kind of mm-hmm. accept that. Um, um, there's this given a certain content of Christology, and this is where you just have to get into the details of Christology. 
then you can work out and say, well, then, okay, what would, what would, or where would the boundaries be for this? Let me just give a real quick example. So Bulgakov, for example, and Lamb of God, his Christology, he's got a very radical canonic Christology, you probably already know, even to the point where he's okay at admitting like Christ's ignorance about certain things, like say in the future, maybe even in the imminent future or whatever. And yet he's an Orthodox priest, right? With this really highly speculative, rich, and he would say Chalcedonian Christology, though he's working beyond Chalcedon. He's receiving actively and developing. He says, what is Chalcedon's yes? We know it's no. What is its yes? What's the positive implications of this teaching? And I think it's interesting to hear like biblical scholars, for example, be like, criticize high Christology in the New Testament or whatever, or Larry Hurtado or, or whoever, who's trying to make a case for early high Christology. Um, and they will, will point out things that show like, well, it looks to me like Jesus is very human or he fits very well into first century Palestinian Judaism and Messianic movements, etc. Um, so therefore, I guess Chalcedon is suspect because there's no way that that fits with this. And it's like, well, what's your interpretation of Chalcedon? Mm-hmm. Bulgakov's would absolutely accommodate that. No problem. In fact, it necessitates it, his version. Like you should find evidence of Christ sort of developing and not being fully right, conscious always of the future or whatever. Now, I'm not saying whether or not it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's an example of like, you can't abstractly say histor- historical scholarship or dogma. These just things have to be brought together in the very act of receiving Christ. Mm-hmm. I know that's still general. I know that's still vague. That's kind of the point is that you, you just can't, you have to get into the details. There's no other way to know generally whether or not developments are good or bad. And so. Well, it's a, it's a recognition of the limitation of the methods. Yes. And yes. a also a recognition of the limitation of propositional truth as such, basically. Yes. Um, and that, that I feel like, you know, throw in all the fancy verveki words that you want. There's uh, more to it than just that. <laughs> And yep. that there's something, a, a small dose of apophaticism, but not a, um, uh, no sense of like giving up or saying that it's useless either. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think probably right. The analogs we have are, um, love, like knowing someone in love art. I mean, there is such a thing as getting art wrong, but it's not like getting math wrong. No. So so it would be wrong to absolutize one form of knowledge and say, well, you know, since this one doesn't meet the standards of our methodology, methodology of what counts as knowledge, it's just making whatever up you want. And it's like, well, no, it's another way of getting at the truth. And so and sometimes it is hard to express like in an abstract method how that goes all the time. Then you have to look to some masters and sort of get like, what's the feel? How do they judge things and like watch them move? And just like an art, just like an right? Aristotelian imitation and all that stuff. So um, yeah, I, you're right. I mean, it's a Rahner, and I, I think it's especially unfortunate. C- Catholics have really wrestled with this. A, of course, because they're like explicitly developing. You can't hide the Marian dogmas or 1950 all of a sudden, right? The assumption mm-hmm. of Mary or whatever. Um, you can't, you can't hide that stuff. But then also like um, there's a there's just this like, you know, even just from Vatican one to two, it's like, man, what happened? You know, like, what's, is this the same church? And then you got all these arguments that Catholics have. So world wars happened. <laughs> world wars happens. Exactly. And the other thing that I think Catholics are not enough th- that we should admit 
there's another thing happened is a long embittered resentment about losing influence in West, in the Western world from 1789 on. We've just lost. What, what do you ground. mean by 1789? Is that French revolution? French or? revolution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the great Catholic, right. Sort of bastions in Western Europe throws off all authority, including the clerics violently. Mm-hmm. So, and so now your French Catholic King isn't even hardly beholden. I mean, there's, it's always been dicey, but, you know, so you start to lose, you know, we've already lost Germany in the Protestant and it's all broken up and now there's Protestant realms. Mm-hmm. Now are even the Catholic states and nation states aren't in lockstep anymore. And this, and now we have America, which is a whole country founded that doesn't even have an official right affiliation. And so there's this, like, I think, I do think Catholics, if I'm being honest, I've since, and I've only been one for nine years. So obviously I'm, I'm still new, but um, there's a sense of like, there's like a nostalgic sense of loss and mourning and lament over what we once had in the world has gone fragmented. And now we, that's why mm-hmm. Catholics are so excited to celebrate like, Oh wow, this, and I know Christians broadly are, but um, wow, this, this filmmaker is Catholic. <laughs> you know, this novelist is Catholic. Like that's awesome that we're in, <laughs> we're still influenced people, you know? And Although it used anyway. to be, you could take all of those things for granted. <laughs> Of course, exactly. everybody. Would be, of, of course, course they point. were. Of course, Shakespeare was Catholic, right? Yeah, he was. I mean, it's like you know, Dante was born in Italy. Like, what else was he? You know, mm-hmm. so or actually, uh, Shakespeare. Th- Shakespeare maybe wasn't the best example. But anyway, well, uh, people even debate that. Yes, so. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, I do feel like uh, critical higher scholarship is sort of running out of steam. I don't know if you might feel like you've sensed sort of the same thing. I think you're closer inside the academic circles than I have, but I feel like it's sort of getting to the point where it's, it's almost like it's run its course a little bit and it's sort of, there isn't much more fruit on that tree and, Mm -hmm. or there isn't much more deconstruction left from that. And there's almost this weird sort of turning where it's like, okay, now to really extra understand what's going on in this chapter of Exodus, I have to understand the supernaturalism of their worldview. And it's sort of like, almost like re-enchanting itself again, when previously it was like, oh, well, this looks like, well, he started using Elohim over here instead of Adonai. And so this is the Deuteronomist or whatever, you know, putting his hand in again. It's sort of like flipping upside down where we're trying to re-enchant our imagination with the mindset that they had. And it's yeah. like coming full circle in a weird sort of way. I don't know if you feel like you've noticed or or felt something yeah. similar to that. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation, Sam. I I have to think about it more, but I do think I think there is something to it. it yeah, it's like um, you know, it's we, we move from like demythologizing to like you said, re-enchanting. But I still think the mo- there's still that mo- well, I, I should say among, well, among some, I won't even name names, but let's just say among some, I think there's this still this modern sense of like, um, like I know for example around questions of in Pauline scholarship, and again I'm no expert in that, but I try to read around as much as I can in scriptural scholarship because I because I don't think we should ignore it. So, mm-hmm. but um, there's this so for example, it's like this kind of fascination with like, well, you know what, Paul actually believed in like archons. Yeah, 
and the powers and authorities and and like and third and like, heaven and right and, and, and so what's exactly. third heaven and yeah, and he calls yeah. that paradise which is always right. i've always found that fascinating because people always talk about like paradise in the garden i'm like you mean the third heaven that paul saw they're like wait what yeah but um <laughs> um but but there's a sort but what but then the kind of like it the sort of half attempt at ter- interpretation or like somehow linking it to us usually goes to like so yeah it was just a weird time <laughs> you know it's like okay i mean yeah that's true like i don't i don't think that's wrong but like what does that do for us like like how 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 uh how surprising is it that you know humans that lived two thousand years ago like viewed the world physically differently like i don't i don't know if that's super surprising but um uh, I don't know. So I don't always know what, what it's doing, <laughs> but I also yeah. wonder if there's this other side to it. Like you, the words you just used were, it's sort of running its course, you know, sort of going out. And I kind of think, I think, you know, to tie it to the Verveke stuff, right. It's like, that's true kind of across the board, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. there, there once was a time maybe that we looked to scientists as like priestly almost like tell us what to do, how to live tell us what's true about the world. You're going to make the next big discovery and all that. We still have that, but, um, but there's this dissatisfaction like, well, and, and I, I think that <laughs> that just makes sense to me. Like the human spirit can't be sated by something less than itself. Mm-hmm. And like, just telling me like, well, you know, they used to be wrong about <laughs> the distance of the sun from the earth yeah. <laughs> and like, okay. I mean, Sure, but like, I'm not sure if that makes me enlightened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just makes me. Like I didn't less do wrong. that work. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, it's like, uh, and so yes, we need to be aware of. So that yeah, I get that sense too. Sometimes it, it gets so much in the minutia, and it's trying to weird everything, like act, like almost like uh, anthropologically, like I'm I've inhabited, you know, mm-hmm. emically and inhabited that the world as best as a historian can. And I'm going to show you just how weird it was, you know? And yeah. it's like, okay, I mean, all right, that's fine. We need to be aware of that. But like, there's, that's like level one here. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the, to- so I think this is a good transition back to one of the topics I did suggest that we talk about. And that was sort of cosmology in yeah. Maximus. And this is one of those things as I've been going through the church fathers, basically, especially anyone who wants to read origin seriously, you have to understand about how they understood the world. And it gets a little weird. And it's (laughs) like, so you have to understand this whole Ptolemaic cosmology where Mm -hmm. the earth's in the middle, or I guess you could even say Hades is underneath the world. And then there's these seven layers of heaven, and they correspond to the two, uh, the sun and the moon and the five visible planets. And they're in the order that they are observable away from the earth, which for the record, they were right about. And they had to do a lot of math and a lot of observing yes. to get right. So we yes. sometimes criticize them for like, oh, those silly geocentrists. It's like, actually, they were doing some pretty sophisticated stuff with nothing but their eyeballs and a chalkboard. Uh, yes. And they did get the order correct for the record. And, yeah. But they did think that the earth was in the middle. And but then in origin, it's not just okay, so the planets are in a slightly different order and the earth's in the middle. It's it's <laughs> that's not even the beginning of the kind of the foreignness of it. It's yeah. like so uh origin believes that each of the planets is a god that is ensouled, and yeah. that there's this like increasing hierarchy of divinity the closer you get to God, and God is in this the 
unbounded super celestial realm outside the spheres. And like origin will say things apparently you know there were some greeks back then who didn't think the planets were insold and his argument was well how could they go in such nice mathematical predictable lines unless they're the sort of rational soul who can understand mathematics how else could they follow their instructions more <laughs> or less and you know it's like that's like one of those things where it just hits a modern person so weirdly and yes. again like i said it's not just the physics of it it's like physics mixed, mixed with theology at the same time in yeah. a way that just we don't really have any way going on. We're just sort of like, okay, there's space and it's matter and it follows the same rules and is made out of the same stuff that we are. It's just really far away. And then maybe outside that or like parallel to that, there's divine stuff. But for origin, and this isn't unique to origin, origin's just like a really clear influential example, there was hierarchies of divinity mixed with it. And that you're when you're doing, you know, uh, scriptural contemplation, your goal is to elevate your soul. And they mean like elevate in a very, I don't know, literal um, sense where your soul is climbing up the spheres of heaven to be closer to God. And in a certain right. sense, you're leaving your body almost to get closer. And you're like, okay, well, that's just origin. He's weird. But then we circle back to Paul ascending to third heaven and being in paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, who knows? You yeah. Know? And and it's like, okay, so you, if you're going to be a soul scripture person, you're going to have to deal with that too. And yeah. so this is one of those things where how how do you make sense of relating to that and sort of connecting to that now as a, a modern person like how are we supposed to interact with that yeah so yeah it's a it's a great it's a huge it's an important question um i have to say i think i i do think um just at first blush right like a prima facie that if you are committed to a view of of revelation and history or divine problem providence that does admit and even expect development there the, the pressures do alleviate a little right because just as i have to speak to my four-year-old one way and my nine-year-old to another and then hopefully when they get older i don't speak to them that way and i speak to them more like adults like you would already you would expect that the human race too goes through stages of progress and regress. I'm not saying everything is progress or whatever, and, and it's all uneven and there's different maturity, you know, growth jumps here and then there's regression here and then there's realization. And then like you would expect that. So it, it in other words, it almost means that the very task of, of inheriting revelation through the church and through tradition and through the scriptures, you should already expect you're going to have to do the critical work of disentangling as best as you can. Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, like it just as another example, I, I read last year through again, cause I was writing a paper on, on Eugena, his big, huge work on the divisions of nature is a ninth century Irish, very influenced by origin and some of these other people. And like in book three or four, I mean, there's like a 50, 60 page, ex, like almost excursus on everything that they know up to that point about like the distances of the sun and the earth how large how many cubits or whatever the the you know the earth is which they can tell like you said those sophisticated stuff like looking at the angle of shadows and they know. had a less than one percent error on their yeah. estimates of the circumference of the earth <laughs> yes and it, and it kind of that already stands to reason right because it's like 
the what they're working with, like you said, is their eyeballs. So the the observations are are surface level, and then abstractions like numbers and math and for you know. So mm-hmm. it does make sense that they would have they would have really cultivated the abstraction to an unbelievably accurate point. And it took observation later with Galileo, Copernicus, and so on to sort of reorient the power of the cogency of the abstract picture of things. And only that, you know, turned it. So, um, so technical prowess enabled um, sort of the abstraction to be corrected in a way that it couldn't be in itself. Like you had to have those observations and then they have to be reconfigured. And here we are quantum and all this. So, um, but but yeah, you you read that and it's just like wow. But but like you said, yeah, the stars, the luminaries have souls. They even are sort of deities. Origin also has like at the end of Contra Kelsum, he has this sense of uh, nationally assigned, like regionally assigned deities, and that like Deuteronomy is making reference of that when it talks about how Yahweh has the portion of Israel, mm-hmm. but then like other gods have other portions. It's just that Yahweh is the best one, right? So, right. <laughs> so so Israel is the best for for at least that reason. Uh, but even within the canon, right, you've got like Amos 9-7, which seems to like, well, hold on a second. Actually, Yahweh's been bringing up other peoples out of slavery in different areas mm-hmm. and times. Like, what in the world's going on there? So there's this internal dialogue and development. But I do think the picture of development of doctrine, so it, it just makes it a part of the task that this is why I don't understand Catholics that can't understand that you have to appreciate critical scholarship. Like, it's an integral. It's an integral component of what we do. We cannot accept the Ptolemaic universe, okay? We just can't do it. Um, so when you're reading that stuff, you have to ask the question, how much is that, how much are the physics there influencing the theology, like you said? Sometimes it's hard to tell, right? I do think there's a few things, though, to to help alleviate the problem. Like, like it's not as drastic, perhaps, as it might first seem. One is that, while you do have that sort of physics developing, you do have that, you know, post-Plato and Aristotle like, robust sense of metaphysics. So that even so, for example, I'm thinking of Plotinus, like, um, what is it? Uh, yeah, Aeneid 6, 4, and 5. He has this remarkable discussion of, of the one's omnipresence. So like the last picture of the of the God's relation to the world you'll get from Plotinus is one where God's like locked up in the ether beyond the ether or whatever. Mm. I mean, he makes an ex- he explicitly goes against all this regional regionalizing of the divinity. And the one is omnipresent because the one is making one the very oneness of all that is. And so he he had so you have this metaphysical tradition and really I should say traditions um, um, that that are variously already trying to negotiate what we would just, you know, call metaphysics versus physics. So you have like the stoic version, which as I point out with Maximus, sometimes he almost seems to go back towards some stoic pictures of the universe, not so much the cyclical, you know, conflagration stuff, but the sense that, um, that there is like a tenor as the, as the stoics would say, or a bond or the very idea of perichoresis, which becomes hugely important in Trinity stuff that's that's a stoic physics idea that two bodies can take up the same space at the same time without annihilating quote the essence of either Mm -hmm. okay so we would we would have said although i think now quantum is once again complicating it but we would have said in the 19th 18th century no that's impossible that's stupid yeah although the stoics the stoics had like this idea that divinity was almost like a particle or something like that. Yeah, like a spark. 
like a spark and it was just the super fine particle. So just as yeah. how I can fill a cup with sand and it's like, oh, it's full of sand. And then I can pour water. And because water is finer than sand, it can get in between, you know, the right. grains of sand. Because divinity is finer than the matter that our bodies are made up. Like divinity can come into us or move around. And yeah. that's like, like when even when Jesus says, like, you know, the, the you see the wind blow and wind is the word spirit. Uh, right. Yeah. But you see the leaves move. You see the effects of spirit, but you can't see spirit itself. So are those who are born of spirit as if like there's this invisible animating force or activity that can be doing things that you see the effects of, even though you can't see it itself. And that and that's sort yeah. of a uh, a stoic ish idea. Yeah, yeah. It's like the the image that comes to my mind is like a neutrino. <laughs> yeah, where, right. Which is so small, it can go through matter, it doesn't infect it, and all that. But it's not. And, it's and not we believe thing, in right? radiation. It's like okay, right. you can't see radiation, but you know, by all means, don't get too close to the inside of a nuclear power plant <laughs> right. because right. There, this invisible stuff will get inside you and tear you apart yeah. and kill you. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it kind of on that train, like the fascinating thing, like hypostasis, you know, hypostasis originally referenced what you just the image you actually just had there, right? The stuff at the bottom of the water, the cup, the cup of water. That's the what lies under, right? Hypostasis, what rests underneath. It's sort of that's why early on it was kind of a synonym with like essence or substance or stuff. It's all the mm -hmm. like the heaviest stuff, which right naturally inclines down towards the lowest um the way aristotelian uh, physics sort of work and um and so like that's the real kind of ground use the solidity of things um that's why i, I find and i don't make this argument very explicit it's just something in my mind but i find i think that by the time you get past chalcedon and hypostasis is now distinguished from essence and yet it has a positivity mm -hmm. you almost get this unwitting return to the idea of the hypostasis, you know, hypostasicity or whatever the heck, you know, through all things. And yet it's not simply physicalist precisely because it's been detached from essence. But anyway, that's a side pet thing. But more to the, the other two other points I'll make about sort of ancient cosmologies. Um, so you've got the metaphysical tradition complicating the physics picture of things even in the ancient world so that's always interesting to trace e even within traditions right like plotinus and porphyry porphyry will directly oppose iamblichus's dirgy stuff exactly because it seems to re-regionalize divine activities in a way that they don't accept mm. so mm. so that so like on the plotinian porphyrian picture they don't they don't think you need to go to a temple or, you know, like mm -hmm. for them, it's like God is already in you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, what would later call the undescended soul where he has both descended. So you need to go through media like matter and all this stuff and undescended, but they've been broken. Well, Plotinus and Porphyry, at least on certain reads, it's debated, but they have just an undescended soul. Like who you fundamentally are is, is divine. And your job then is to, is to kind of, you know, find yourself your way into yourself and, and whatever you need to do so we got contemplation and all this stuff even um, athanasius says basically the exact same thing 
Yes. That yes. That that all the resources for um your approach to God are within you, and basically you already have your divine soul within you, and yes. that you just need to stop being distracted by all of these lowly things and all these earthly things, and yes. look inward and thereby upward. And, and, and of course, he's 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 a student, a reader of uh, of origin, who's yeah. on prayer. What what does he say? He says, "You close your eyes because there's no image to the divinity." That's why mm -hmm. you close your eyes when you pray. You, it, it reminds you physically to stop looking for images. Okay, how does that comport with iconodulia of the sixth, seventh century? Okay, well, if you're a if if you're a fundamentalist, it doesn't. I mean, you can pretend it does. If you're a historicist, then that's proof that this is just an aberration. That's not the original true teaching. If you're a developmentalist like me, you got to be careful because it doesn't always. You can't just wave away all the problems. But you have to say, well, what exactly were the arguments that led to that? They will disagree. The conclusions might disagree with earlier authorities and maybe even earlier church teaching. Mm -hmm. At least on, in some way it does, for sure. Would you say that the iconophiles, as opposed to the iconoclasts, are slightly more Iamblichian? Uh, yes. In a certain, yeah. yeah. And that's because they're also influenced by Dionysius mm -hmm. and, and the actual regional traditions that did grow up around you know in syria and in asia minor so they, they were and um uh so definitely yeah and so like so i can accept that so that's the part right where i'm back to like i can accept the the results of the historical work it's good work in fact for me it actually shows us that our options are development or or um or uh, some kind of arbitrary line drawing mm -hmm. because it's like mm -hmm. no this is a change this is a real change you can't pretend like Paul was like hoping you would put an icon on your, you know, wall of him or <laughs> like, of course not. Um, and not only that, it's not even just that they hadn't thought of it. Sometimes like you're pointing out with Athanasius, I'd point to moments in origin. Sometimes it's positively almost opposed what, mm -hmm. what they later taught about icons and the mediation of veneration of icons. I mean, Athanasius says some pretty nasty things about idolatry and pagan yes. icons yes. of course i mean he you could say well you know he's talking about pagan idolatry and saying well yes he is but he never contrasts that with you know say christian iconography right. and it would seem that the arguments that he uses against pagan idolatry would be able to be turned around just as well on christian iconography. and they were and yeah. they were by iconoclasts. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's the thing. And this helps us understand this is true of all these major debates, right? In the early church, it's, it, it's too easy. And I know it's all polemical and rhetorical and you will find all this rhetoric as you know, but it's too easy to be like, this party came from nowhere and intruded into the pure unbroken tradition. This party was just sort of the conservative trying to hold down the fort, resisting the, uh, the uh, onslaught. No, almost always from Arius to Nestorius to, to Iconoclast, like all of these things, they all have a foot in tradition. And they could definitely objectively point to, look, we've never done this or we've never said this. And that's true. So the question then becomes, instead of a game of propositions or views and, we, and, and imagining something like the New Testament or, or whatever, say the first apostles had a view of things. And that's the truth. That's Christian faith. And we have to line up later views and thinkers and say, well, which one is closer to the original pure view? Then it's like that's a sort of gallery of individuals debating each other. And then we decide who wins. The other view would be 
no individual has it. And that the movement of the spirit and divine providence to the church as a kind of ongoing process of incarnation, which I would ultimately say, through the church and in the world, that is the whole truth. And so the question, for example, when you get to iconoclasm, really, even though the rhetoric doesn't say this, I mean, I admit that. Like what Nicaea 2 says about, oh, this is always what we've done. Well, on the, I mean, look, just objectively in history, that isn't it, true. It, it also seems true that everyone <laughs> who's arguing that what they're saying is right always argues that it's what they've always done. Exactly, exactly. I, I was reading like the Edict of Thessalonica recently, which is the Edict in 380 AD by the Emperor mm -hmm. Theodosius, which is basically establishing Trinitarianism as the law of the land or else. And right. he's like... And this is the, you know, we've received this from the apostles and it is unblemished <laughs> right. through the ages. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. he's doing the thing. This is what we've always done. Anyone who else, let them be called heretics. And we yes. will um, use the sword on them if we need to. Yeah. And because, so like, right. Yeah. And, and it's like, look, I, yeah. And it's there's so much politics there. And I, I am not one who denies that politics have had, has had a, you know, a definitive role very often. And I think I think to our chagrin. Or, or really, I should grant to our just to our shame, I think, and um, that's why I don't view right the like kind of modern disenfranchisement of the church is necessarily a bad thing, at least not too, not entirely. Um, it, it might actually be a refining fire, etc. But um, um, but there, it's like you get this sense, and, and like and, and look, in a way, every tradition does this, right? Every tradition has a sense of. Because one of the things we detect abstractly and philosophically is that truth, if it's really the truth, doesn't change. Like that's one property we, we've always described and Plato does all the time. Socrates does. That's why people get so frustrated at Socrates, because he's forcing them to realize over and over again. Actually, when you give me a definition, it's wrong and then you have to change it and you have to change it. And we never get to anything fixed and solid. Mm -hmm. So everyone wants to say once they think they get to the truth. Ah, this has always been the way it is, actually. It's just, no. And I didn't make it up. So I'm going to say this is always mm -hmm. what we've done. So like Nicaea 2 says that about icons, like, you know, Iconodulia. Okay, it's not true I, historically, I don't think. Or at least the case isn't there for it. And the case is pretty strong against that. However, for me as like a feel, like a, like a theolog, like thinking theologically, that really isn't the only question. This is where I differ from fundamentalists of whatever kind or and historicists of, of whatever kind. Because actually, those two mirror each other. They like to pretend both of them are objective and all that. And um, that they've got the final method. Or, yes, you know. exactly. They've got the method that will ensure the results. And so what, what I would say is, theologically, the question isn't, did Athanasius, you know, venerate icons? The, the question is, can we incorporate the critiques Athanasius himself makes of idolatry and the fact that those were turned back against iconophiles can we incorporate both of these mutual critiques in a higher synthesis which doesn't simply choose one side or the other but kind of shows how both were onto something but there's a greater truth to this that would constitute that's still broad but that would constitute a kind of like mm -hmm. okay that's at least a possibility of development that isn't simply choosing sides but is also not you know therefore not ignoring sides um explicitly that's what maximus is engaged in about defending chalcedon against the neophysites right and so on so to me this is kind of always the way tradition 
in one banal sense, every tradition does this. I mean, look at the American Constitution and how do you interpret that? And we've got this whole long, you you argue for precedent, but also for legitimate developments and application, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a way like what tradition has to do to live through change. Right. On the other hand, there is, I don't think it's right. I think you still can ask the question, but is this development a good one or a bad one or for what reason? So it's 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 only in the action of receiving and arguing and debating going back and forth that this stuff can be judged, I think. So yeah, and um, even the most hardcore restorationist postured church, well, you have a parking lot. Um, did the first <laughs> right. century churches have parking lots? You've got yeah. light switches and electric guitars. You have this yeah, hymnal, exactly. which doesn't date from the first century, or <laughs> and you're projecting the lyrics up, you know, with um, you know, pretty backgrounds and and that sort of thing. <laughs> There's always this act of translation across time, no matter how far you turn the dial in in terms of restorationism. And yes. I, I think that you know, these questions are unavoidable and they could say, oh, well, those things aren't essential to the faith, whether or not you have, um, you know, a light switch in your church auditorium. That's not essential. That's not the sort of thing we're talking about, but that's in itself a judgment that you are making as a person in your context about how to relate to the text and to history and to the early church. And that it's unavoidable that you'll have to make those sorts of judgments somewhere. And the, the deep anxiety about religion then, especially in, in our era, I think, is that this is the place where you legitimate your spirit is legitimately responding to what you know is a sort of absolute draw. My desire for God, the truth, for meaning of all this, right? At the same time, you have to know that you still don't thereby escape the the, the obligation to interpret to judge, to wrestle anew. And it's like the church, every era, and in all its different manifestations and denominations, stuff, new rest. It's like, we're never just at rest. We're always, oh, we have to rethink this. And not just we have to rethink new questions, but we have to revisit old answers to old questions. And that's that induces anxiety because what, what people on the one hand were drawn towards is stability. I want mm-hmm. something that I can just put rest my hat on here. Like Mm -hmm. everything else is changing in the world. We're all going to (laughs) die. So uh, is there something fixed here? But then at the same time, then when you realize, oh, but even here, we still have to wrestle like Jacob with the angel. You still have to struggle. You still. And it's like, ah, okay. So there's no escape. And then people get anxious and they get fear driven. And then they start hunting heretics and all that. So, so there's this sort of like, or they throw it all out, right? And the religion is just total nonsense and who needs Mm -hmm. organized religion and all that. So, um okay so i think i wandered away there's just one two quick things i wanted to say about the cosmology question i'm sorry to wander off um i wanted to just say that the metaphysics and the um and the physics were always sort of talking to each other even the ancient world so you can use that as a way to be like okay here okay origins introducing some physics stuff but that that might not be the full picture and maybe other parts of his metaphysics can at least loosen the connection between physics and theology in his thought. Maybe, maybe not. That's a judgment. Um, the other thing, and you get hints of this. I wanted to mention St. Augustine's remark uh, in his, uh, uh, I think it's the Gen- uh, Genesis commentary, literal commentary on Genesis. He has a few different moments in there where he he actually warns 
against too closely linking your theology to any what he calls, I think, uh, investigations into nature. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. um and he actually he actually uh, he was really sensitive to this I think because he had done this, but um he says it's such, he talks about how shameful and such embarrassment it is when non-believers hear believers make pronouncements about science like what we would call scientific matters based on scripture that everyone else listening knows is totally wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and this that, is a you can imagine Augustine maybe when he was a Manichaean or a Neoplatonist. Having mm-hmm. heard Christians say silly things and that being a stumbling block for him towards the faith and him coming yes. in from the inside with still remembering that outsider perspective. Absolutely. And, and then on the other side, too, when he finally meets, uh, was it, uh, is it Faustus himself? Yeah, I think he met Faustus, who's reputed to be this great Manichaean teacher. And he brings all his questions to him. I mean, Faustus doesn't know what he's talking uh, According This is according to Augustine, of course doesn't know what he's talking about and that really shakes and so makes him leave that that group and so he's very i think i mean i think Augustine has his own like sometimes inferiority conflicts you know he's a great genius but he's sort of always worried about not looking like he knows what he's talking about um so he's sensitive to that but i'm just saying that that's a moment where you kind of see this like even then there's a kind of critical self-reflection of like hey guys let's not be too you know, committed and wedded to these certain pictures of the world that might actually make us look bad in the long run. Well, on, and that score, he's right. He, he's been proved right. The last point I would make just really quickly about Maximus is that I actually hardly ever see him invoke, like, like that's actually a striking difference between him and uh, say Origen or, or even Augustine, like very, there's a, like e- even, even a Dionysius, right? A great authority for Maximus who's got angelic hierarchies and stuff. He actually hardly ever mentions that. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Like, in fact, he never uses the word hierarchy ever in his whole corpus. <laughs> yeah. It's very, that's a very, because he wrote Scolia. He wrote like a little commentary on Dionysius's whole corpus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you, Dionysius coins the word hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So it's really remarkable that Maximus doesn't imbibe as much. I mean, you'll get little allusions here and there. But it's usually generic, like the angels or something. There's no like everything is structured in this way. Here's all the layers and stuff. So mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. another reason why I've kind of felt like he, in a certain way, returns a little bit more to a, like a stoic shape of things. Because they, the only hierarchy the Stoics had was built from within and, of course, crumbles and then re, you know, recycles. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have some rigid hierarchy and they criticized the divine ideas and all that stuff. So anyway... Mm-hmm. That's just a little thing on Maximus, but those are some thoughts. Sure. What did what did Maximus believe about the logos? Just a simple question. <laughs> well, I mean, so he's committed to Nicaea and to Con- uh, Chalcedon. So he's saying he, he definitely thinks the logos is, you know, in their terms, consubstantial with the Father and the Spirit. So he's fully and completely divine, no less divine than the Father or the Spirit. But with Chalcedon, you have to add, but he's consubstantial with us, too. Mm-hmm. So he's no less human. And I would, you know, of course, create it and everything else that comes with being human and, and even becoming. Like, that's the interesting thing. Ma- Maximus would be really strong on say, denying that Christ could have sinned. But he can't deny that Christ had to develop human, like in his human life. Interesting. So um, sometimes when I read Maximus, 
Um, the logo sounds sort of abstract, almost like what mm -hmm. we would call like the realm of eternal truths or something right. like that. Right. And in a way that can sometimes even smack of it being kind of impersonal, um, right. like the way that a modern person would think about the laws of physics or something like that. Yeah. They're not yeah. inside creation. They govern creation. They're always true. Who, uh, Depending on who you ask, who knows where they came from. But you couldn't like speak to the laws of physics. It's just sort of this abstraction right. that we can relate to in our minds. And then, you know, and then there's this really strong connection to Jesus of Nazareth. So, um, and then he also has this sort of like seeds of the logos idea and that, you know, it's not unique to him, but he seems to develop it more and, and lean yeah. into that more than some other people where everything is, it has logi in it in some sort of sense. So, uh, so not, not necessarily like talking about the second person of the Trinity per se, although obviously he of course does think the logos is the second person of the Trinity, but how, what, what's the relationship between creation and thought and abstract truth and the logos uh, in, in Maximus? So it is crucial um, for him that the logos is not, not just a second person of the Trinity, but is a person. And I think that's mm -hmm. important because um, so he's trying to hold together both a um, a sort of like the sense in which God creates the world with intention. Also, he would use logos there purpose with desire that's rational and structured. So, so he doesn't want to get a, get away from all structure, even though he doesn't have really rigid hierarchy, but stability, right? The, the, something's logos and you can act like a phrase. You might be thinking of this, like you can act according to your logos, that is to say, almost like naturally, like you said, like laws of physics mm -hmm. or something. Uh, of course, he means that a little broader in the sense of like what it means to be the kind of being you are. So not just, you know, you're subject to gravity, but also you have you have more than just locomotion as in, uh, the movement of locomotion, is, which you have with the body. But you also have desire, which you have with will. And you also have thought and contemplation or theory, uh, as he says. Um, which you can ab you can you know abstract things or you can contemplate their essence, although he's still very clear that the essence can't be comprehended completely of anything, even the lowest thing. Um, so what I so the logos in that sense, the logos is the kind of so I don't want to use this word because he never uses it, but he's the make what makes possible the fixity of everything that is what it is the range of ways it can act, the quality of its existence. Um, so yes, he, he, is a, he is the law of the universe in that sense, the law of its diversity and unity. Mm -hmm. But I think crucially for Maximus, and he even has a moment where he says, like basically discard the sense of essence right now, but that the, the, but the very one who is at the, that the, almost like the impersonal heart or the heart of the, the um, impersonal law-like structure of unity and diversity of the world at the end of the day is also a person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that means built into the, even the most almost impersonal uh, movements and structures, there is a sort of seed of personal intersubjective knowing in all things because he is in all things, including in you. And so it's set. So the way I put it in the book is like the very sort of, sort of structure of the causation of the world or like, or you might say the heart or the seeds of the world, which is still budding forth is already setting every single being up on a track to, 
to culminate in perichoresis or the mutual indwelling through love of persons. And that would include all creatures with each other as well. And so that, that is, it's, it's this kind of remarkable wedding or unification of logos as, as right, as the more, I might even say platonic or, uh, you know, sense of the, the structure, the intelligibility, the, 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 uh, the uh, arrangement of the world, the fixity and stability through change of everything. What makes something perceptible to you or, or contemplatable by you um, and what makes you contemplate. And yet that's all abstract. And I think because he, he wants to identify so closely or so exactly, actually. Uh, the logos of all things with this person, Jesus of Nazareth, he thereby commits himself to saying, and here again, there's a little stoic resonance here, but he commits himself to saying that the very logos who is universally the, the reason or structure or ground of all things is also personally uh, a personal existence, which is personally, and I would say intersubjectively uh, interacting with all things unto the perichoresis which is itself the very form of life of the Trinity. And that seems unimaginable to most people, because, of course, if you just think vertically, creator, creature, God, world, high, low, hierarchy, once again, it doesn't seem like that could, it seems like if you're on the same level of the hierarchy, you could sort of have this mm -hmm. reciprocal, symmetrical, perichoretic relation to intersubjective. But to, to sort of take, you know, to, to say that can apply vertically, would seem to be impossible because we're just so fundamentally essentially distinct and, and lower than say God or even the angels. But what I think he thinks is that the incarnation makes horizontally possible. What is vertically impossible mm -hmm. because, because Christ is consubstantial with the father equally consubstantial with you and me, he himself, as he always likes to quote first Timothy here, he himself is the sole mediator of God and man. Mm-hmm. So the logos is and he likes universe. that verse. He loves it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's like biblical Unitarian's favorite verse. That's <laughs> so funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, he he lo he loves that verse. He quite quotes it all the time. And in fact, he says, like, this is our salvation. Like, if mm -hmm. he isn't, if, if he isn't the mediator, like a hybrid or a third term or some sort of like in between, he's the mediator as being both extremes at once in himself like because he's fully both he can make fully both one which is not naturally conceivable it seems impossible and so for him that's that's the heart right that's why he can say that all the ages and all the beings within those ages have received their beginning and end in christ like in the event in the middle of history so logos is at once universal sort of law-like structure intelligibility of the world and the most personal, intimate, you know, interactor and mediator between God and the world. Logos is at once the kind of condition of all the ages, the possibility for time's flow and everything else, and also an event in the midst of that time. And yeah, so he's he's pulling together all these extremes around the one logos. That's sort of the pattern. Mm -hmm. So you, you talked, you, you mentioned briefly that um, Maximus believed that in a certain sense, even Jesus, perhaps in his humanity, was almost like leveling up or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So this is a this is a really not very well known controversy that I think is unfortunate because it's really fascinating 
And really, I think it's still to the heart of a lot of fundamental tensions and concretizes it in a very specific question. Here's the question. And this was, you might already know about this, but um, fifth, sixth, seventh century, uh, it's called the Afthartodocetist controversy. Some would, some were saying this, if Christ is God from the moment of conception, um, and this is usually the Miaphysite side who wants to really be emphasized, this is divine, he is divine. Mm. If he is God, then that would mean he has all the attributes of divinity from his conception and birth from, yeah, from the get-go. <laughs> and that means one of those is incorruptibility. Because God is life itself. God can't be subject to corruption. He's not subject to anything. He's the cause, transcendent cause of all things. So that means if, if the divinity really is communicated to his humanity because he's both from the beginning, then he couldn't have been, his body couldn't have been corrupted. They try to wiggle around with like, okay, but then what's that mean? He was killed. You know, how does that, um, and there's different ways they try to do it. Julian of Halicarnassus is one of, so sometimes they're called the Julianists. Uh, he tries to do this. And it's even, it's like an intra-factional dispute among Miaphysites and those that reject Chalcedon. But they're trying to make sense of this because if they're going to go full Cyril, right, and full like one subject, he's divine from the get-go, never separation after the union, not even two natures after the union, then that means that the one nature has to have all the properties of divinity, which would include incorruption, which would include not being able to die. So that's like, even some of the Miaphysites have to back off there. But, well, hold on a second. I mean, he died on the cross. Like we can't. Uh, so, and he was dead. Like on Saturday, you can't just skip to like resurrection before he even dies. So, uh, so that was like an intra dispute. But it's interesting because with the neo Chalcedonians, including Maximus, they're very aware of this. There's one figure, Leontius of Byzantium. He's got a whole treatise against contra-orthodoxists. And um, th but but that's still a problem for for Chalce Chalcedonians even, right? Because even mm -hmm. if you don't go full Miaphysite, you have to say, well, and especially for someone like Maximus, who 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 very much says that the, the two natures he follows Gregory of Nazianzus here, but he makes it a huge deal. The two natures of Christ and their two activities, their two actualities that 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 that. That the two natures produce, even though it's one person who is himself in both modes. That the fact that he himself is both human and divine means that none of his activities are like separate off from each other. Like he turns this way and does a divine thing, and then turns over here and does a human thing. He says, No, they're always inseparable, always together, and then for him, always mutually interpenetrating, which has some wild ramifications if you think about it. But the point is, he still has to face this problem. Because, okay, if they're always interpenetrating, that's the way you want to say that the divine properties are communicated to his humanity, fine. It's not miaphysite, but you still have the same problem. And so, um, what he, so one moment, it's an oblique uh, um, passage, but he, he makes a distinction between uh, Christ's incarnation, by which he means in God's divine providence, this is the goal of the whole world, is, is that... You know, we become one in Christ with God. Um, and his kenosis. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't a different incarnation or whatever. It's an it's the it's the actual historical aspect or quality that the incarnation itself took in its emergence in history, which is, and this is key, already responsive to the fall. So 
I know Catholics don't usually like this, but it, I don't know how to get around it. Like the flesh that Christ took, even though he himself did not sin in it or through it, because he's not a sinner. Nevertheless, it he he takes it from us. That's always the formula, even in the creeds. He's it's from us. Takes flesh from Mary, who is also from us. But that means that it already bears the kind of conditions or consequences of the fall of original sin. Now, in Mary's case for Catholics, right, they want to make an exception. Okay, that's let's let's table that discussion for now for a second. For Maximus, he doesn't have that. So we'll just say um, the, the flesh that Christ in hypostasizes or makes real, makes his own, and his person is a hypostasis. It isn't just merely ex nihilo, like it is ex nihilo, but it's not merely ex nihilo in the sense of like, let's start a new series. He's the first in the series. This is where the series dawns. And then he's going to sort of produce a line of progeny spiritually or whatever. It's in the middle of history. So it's already responsive to the fallen world, which means it does have the marks of corruptibility, of mortality, of weakness and frailty. And yet, it's not his weakness. It's not the conditions or the consequences aren't from his own sin. They're from ours. So he does receive from us, even to so the character of his incarnation is at once responsive and initiative. And for Maximus, he said the initiation, which is primordial, even before anyone's sin or anything in God's intention is, is the incarnation proper. So that's why for him, sin, incarnation is not a response to the fall like it was for Augustine and Aquinas. It's um, it is the plan. It's the whole plan from he says it's the divine eternal counsel. Okay, so that is never changed, and we didn't cause that or something. Mm -hmm. But the mode in which it it appears first in this space time world is responsive to the very space time world in which it emerges. So his kenosis, Bogakov later will say, right? It's it's he sets aside not his essence but his glory. He takes on our consequences so that he, and this is where I think we were on this last time or this topic, he, as it were, makes himself present. He in he he makes concrete in hypothesizes the technical term. He makes concrete the very conditions that we have caused, but since he makes himself inseparable from those exact conditions, then even our conditions of our fallen conditions of finitude, mortality, frailty, sickness, and death are not bereft of the divine word's presence, which is why we can find Christ even in death through baptism, but in our actual death in order to be raised with him to life, as it says in Romans. So that kind of like the exchange goes all the way down to an exchange of what we have caused, but he has not. And yet he takes mm -hmm. that on in his own body. So for Maximus, the character of the body of the incarnation is already marked by sin, but not his sin, ours. That means it does, it is corruptible. And yet, right, he has to, <laughs> so this is why I think it's like such an interesting pressure point because it's like, okay, so what are you saying then? He is not saying that the very fact that Christ had to develop uh, humanly is caused by sin. That would be just to say that creation itself is evil, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. It's the mode in which he had to develop into Right. He had to express, as it were, or perform the very development that we should have had, but never did because of sin. 
And yet is he's it, also responding to sin. Right. Is this how he's, is he relating to the, he who knew no sin took yes. on sin. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And this is sort of him fleshing that out quite yes. literally. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. He, be, he became sin and a curse for us. Second Corinthians 5, uh, five. And he only actually cites that verse like once or twice. I'm surprised he doesn't cite it more, but, um, but he does cite it. Uh, but he, uh, yeah, but it's exactly that. It's it's that he becomes sin and a curse for us, not his own sin. And because that's the kind of mind, that's the paradoxical thing of Maxus on the incarnation here, is that he wants to hold both that it's the primordial reality, the absolutely eternal intended act of God in creation, and in my opinion, as creation, and also the actual conditions and modes within which it first emerges within history and time and space is just as much responsive as it is initiative. And mm -hmm. so it's both at once. It's both at once. So when we look at him, the paradox is you're going to find moments where you're like, wow, he's just another dude, you know, maybe a really moral, whatever, another dude. Um, and look, he died. He's sort of weak too. I mean, he can be poked in the side and blood comes out. Right. Um, but at the same time, you're going to see, right here he is risen in power and glory by the spirit or whatever. So you're going to, you're going to see both at once and it's not going to be easy to hold that together. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's getting at a little bit. So, so here's the way I would put it. It's a little more systematic than the way Maximus ever quite does. The development Christ undergoes, which we get very little about, of course, in the gospels, but a little glimpses is at once natural and not at all responsive to evil because anything that's created has a beginning and anything that has a beginning has a process mm -hmm. and a perfection. That's fine. That's like, that's just normal. What that's the path. But the thing is his path isn't a new one. He's not a total trailblazer in the sense of the beginning of the sequence. He's in the middle of the sequence, which means it's also responsive to everything that came before and, and after, if you, if you allow the transcendence of time. And so even though his development is in itself good, and he, in fact, I would say for Maximus, he is making development itself good by himself developing. Mm -hmm. And making that's sort of an, an Irenaeus like idea. Yes, yeah. yes exactly. Mm -hmm. The long sort of, right, we had to accustom ourselves to divinity over the long eight, and God is long suffering. And, mm -hmm. um, but it's not just he's making like his development has two aspects. The one is the natural development that, yeah, Irenaeus argued we all have to kind of undergo. It's part of creation. But it's not that he's just being a creature. He's being the remedy for fallen creation, too. So he's simultaneously developing in a natural way that's just fine and not evil, but also responding to and taking on him, himself the, the results of false development the fall. And so he is, so the paradox is even greater than just, Oh, he's divine. And also human it's, Oh, he's divine. And also responding to those of us who failed to be human. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the, the richer texture of the actual incarnation as we see it in history and attest to in the gospels and so on. So I don't know if that gets at your exact question, but that's, yeah, that's interesting. So the reason, part of the reason I'm asking, so like in my Christology, I would be perfectly fine saying that Jesus grows in divinity over time and that there's like these, you know, degrees and steps of increasing participation in divinity for Jesus. Like he, you know, from the virgin birth, he's starting out at a pretty high level for a human. 
uh, in terms of closeness to God, um, you know, born, born with, uh, you know, however you want to think about original sin, the virgin birth somehow skips that process. I, I, I don't need to go into too many details, but we'll just, yeah. uh, I would just, we'll leave it at that. And then like at his baptism, he's getting indwelt uh, with the Holy Spirit without measure. You know, he's like making progress, moral progress. The like transfiguration is like some sort of like, blast mm -hmm. into the present a sneak peek at the future or something like that and then like um i like in hebrews you know that he was made perfect by what he suffered yeah. and that there's this this forging and this perfecting of jesus on the cross where like the divinity and the humanity finally have zero gap between them mm -hmm. and then he's like sowed this perfect divine seed in his death and mm -hmm. that's why you know he can't stay dead and then he blooms in the resurrection into this new spiritual embodied um, divine participative person of the new creation. And that there's like, so there's like this ever decreasing gap between Jesus's humanity in divinity, uh, reaching a perfection and a focal point, like right at the moment he dies, ironically. Uh, mm -hmm. And, but, and so like, it doesn't seem like Maximus would be quite comfortable with that, um, mm -hmm. but it seems I, I it seems close. I don't know what, what what would your reaction be to that? Yeah. So right. So he would he would definitely, in one respect, not be comfortable in the sense that um, like I don't think he ever wants a time. And this is partly right the pressure of the Miaphysites because they suspected the Chalcedonians of an Astorius type thing, and he would have a similar kind of like. Um, Christ is the man who is closest in his relation to the word. Um, and even though Nestorius is a Nicene Christian, he, he wants to have that, right? And so there's this dynamic process. So he's close enough to the Miaphysites that he, he, he doesn't want there to be a time where like Christ isn't God. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and yet you can't ignore, as I think you're picking up and what you're sort of foregrounding, you also can't ignore that there's a process and there's development. And right, and the Afthardodosatists, or I'll just say, I should say the Julianists because that's not really a nice <laughs> label. But let's just say the Julianists were not <laughs> wrong. They were not wrong to see, um, well, if we're going to say he was God from the very start, then you almost in a sense you need to eliminate process of some kind, at least with respect to divinity. And so they would they wanted to follow through all the way and say, okay, well, then he's incorruptible from birth. Because he's God from birth, and God's incorruptible. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting is even Miaphysites and certainly Neocostodonians don't want to follow that all the way through, and so they're going to push back and resist that. But then that makes the, the question of development forefront again. And so what I think ultimately, I'll I'll summarize it in my words, and just you know whether or not Maximus would fully agree, I don't always know. Uh, but I'll just say what I think Maximus has to do or the Neo-Calcedonian perspective would have to do is to say the very framework of, of the either or here where either Christ grows participatively by degrees into div a divinity he never had before that, or, or Christ is divine in a way that he never has to grow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they would they would want to end up saying neither of those both of those are necessary but neither of those are the full picture 
And there you have to ultimately go to reconfigure your very view of God that says, well, God isn't at, like, this is the significance of saying God's essence is super essence, super essential. That's a negative statement. It's just like, it's not like any essence we know. But then you need the positive moment where you say, in fact, it, he is the God is the three persons. By the very fact that he's the three persons, he's not confined to what we would normally predict or expect um, in our judgments about what it would mean to be the divine essence, which usually just means whatever it doesn't mean to be creatures. Like he's sort of locked up in negations. And so it must be that God can't, like he actually shows his most positive transcendence and infinity. And this is sort of a Gregory of Nyssa move precisely by the fact that he can both um, perform or be and undergo process into divinity, but also always already ha was divine. This is Bulgakov. Even Eryugina does a version of this on a, on a much bigger scale and um, kind of, I think, influenced by Maximus, um, right? Where the last division of nature is, because um, I don't have to get too much in the weeds here, but let's just say, you know, for Eryugina, it's uh, there's four divisions, that which creates but isn't created. That's usually what people mean by God. That which is created and creates, like mediators, like divine ideas. That's the second. The third is that which is, isn't created and does not create for him. That's like bodies or matter. And by create, he means, you know, ex nihilo, not just reproduce. And, but then he has this return at the end of his long work in the fourth division, which is God again. This time is that which neither is created nor creates. Now, initially, people, I think, will be like, oh, well, that's sort of like Aristotelian final cause. Like, he's just sort of dragging us to himself. He's not doing anything, like, efficiently, mm -hmm. like, causing. But actually, that whole division is about the body of Christ, the composite body, the whole Christ, the totus Christus, which is the whole world. And so the return to so this whole thing has looked like a process. Creation is unfolding. But the actual perfection isn't just, oh, that's the last episode. Finally, we reached our goal. It's the last moment in the process. It's the actual undermining of process itself as absolute. So it looks like uh, actually the end of the process looks like a God who never began one, mm -hmm. a process mm -hmm. <laughs> because, because, and so I'm, I'm pulling from these different people to kind of give Maximus the heft. I think he would, I think he would agree with, but you, you wouldn't necessarily find always spelled out, which is that what the incarnation does to our conceptions of infinity it shows that God is not bound by these apparent essential opposites. And one of those oppositions is exactly, do you undergo process or, or are you just sort of always what you are? And for him, you want to just affirm both at once. And yes, that's the paradox. You, you know, you, you could just call it a contradiction or whatever. It's not, a, it's not an exact contradiction because it isn't saying process is eternity or eternity is process. That's just a contradiction. It's the one who it can be both. That's a little different. That's more like paradox. It might not be persuasive, but it's not a straightforward contradiction either. So it's the one subject who can be both right effect or, or human or created and creator or divine. But the way in which that actually like phenomenologically unfolds, yes, it will look like a process. And this is the part where I'm like, Biblical scholars, right? Anyone that's saying, like, people that are like, look, you know, Trinitarian just straight up the dogma and formula is not in the New Testament. Of course it isn't. There's That's just true. But, 
but what's the interpretation of that, right? And there, there's no way to make an absolute interpretation apart from the particulars of one's Christology itself. And so for him, I think because he can, he wants to say we can hold both, that God can be in process. I and mean, Arigen more, more boldly says, you know, creation is God's self-creation. Um, that God is, God can be not just the condition of process, like as if, it, as if he's as if he's separate, like in the old, right, Ptolemaic view or something. Like he's like out there, sort of fiddling with your process and watching you go. Or nor that he can just sort of jump in the pool and also be one of those that's in process, but that he can sort of be both the beginning and the end and the middle of the process in a way that doesn't absolutize. Um, you know, uh, these oppositions that we normally come up with abstractly between eternity and process or time or whatever. So he has to say both. Like, I think that's, that's the bottom line is he has to, he has to affirm both that Christ developed and that you can plot that through the gospels. Like, like you did, like, he has to agree with that. That's just for one thing, it's just there, but also like, it's not just that it's just there. Like, that's the thing. I don't want to say he's like apologetically trying to stitch it up. I mean, like maybe some people would say that, but I think it's also that his Christology demands total and full humanity and that Christ is as human as he is God, which would mean he has to be as capable of undergoing process as he is of creating process and the conditions for process. And that, that somehow his being both joins both, which is abstractly inconceivable. Mm -hmm. Interesting. How does this relate <laughs> to creation in Maximus? So I think it relates because, yeah, so far what we've talked about is um, is kind of like a particular case, right? Jesus of Nazareth. And, and, and that's usually where people start, understandably. I think it's the way, you know, the doctrine itself kind of unfolded was, okay, look at this man. Like, what can you say about him? What do you deduce about Jesus of Nazareth? But I think Maximus, he can do that, but he can also come from, because he's committed to this both hand, the Chalcedonian symmetry, the con double consubstantial, all that, and their ultimate perichoresis, their ultimate interpenetration. He can also say, well, if this one really, this particular man, it really is divine, and he's inseparable from his divinity and his particular human existence, then he makes his particular human existence universally present. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which would th which would th so this has bizarre really weird i mean admittedly strange implications but so something like if i wanted to be poetic right i would say something like and maybe i'm not a great poet i'm, I'm not but um something like the red like like the resonances of the man jesus christ is in all time and in all men like like they're not and not just echoes or like oh yeah he's sort of connected in the great web of life with us now it's like fundamentally our principles, like whatever our causes and our fundamental conditions are themselves already responsive to informed by that man's life. Mm -hmm. And like mm -hmm. a, in like a profound and deep way, even I think for Maximus, of course, who was a monk after all, even to the point where the prick of conscience is he, he one time he has this, um, interpretation of job where he's talking about the worm eating the tree you know he's like this is you know allegorizing <laughs> this is the conscience which 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 eats at us but what eats at us isn't just an abstract like oh i should i should be better or i should do better things or i was i feel bad about what i did 
It's that you once you connect that your personal sin has not only been, you know, addressed by the God man's crucifixion, but actually has somehow caused it at the same time. Like there's this inseparable link or direct um, contact between these two, even though that seems absurd because I live 2000 years later. What did I have to do with that? No, like everyone's personal sin is a, is responded to, and in a certain sense, enabled by that one particular man's death. Um, then you start to the conscience gains, as it were, content, and you and and it's not to just make you feel bad, but it is to make you realize the depths of your separation, self separation from that man, to the point where you brought dereliction on him. But then that isn't meant to just make you feel bad. It's meant to bring you back and say, but yet he persists through what we've done to him and he's raised he's raised from the dead and he wants to bring all of those who did that to him with him and so it's kind of the movement of the spirit through ascetic practices and prayer that gets you to see this almost mystical connection between the particular life death of uh, and resurrection of christ and the universal life death and resurrection of all other creatures yeah that so yeah that so that, 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 that that in that sense like that's almost like a gloss on Colossians 1. Right. The one who is the image of the invisible God through whom and for whom all things have been made is also the one who is first born among the dead. And somehow yes. he's both at once. And it's connected to every death. It's, death is an abstract. It's the death of. The death of what? That animal. That person. That planet. That star. I don't know. Uh, all of that somehow is also is somehow already formed by the death of Jesus. And vice versa, like this, again, reciprocity between God and world, which usually isn't thinkable. Mm -hmm. um, in my talks with John Verveke, when I've been talking about uh, specifically sort of like the connection between evolution and Christianity, um, yeah. I've like proposed to him. So there's like the, the form of a perfect polar bear. And it's like that perfect polar bear that is selecting on the polar bears that are alive now. Right. There's almost like evolution almost doesn't make sense to even speak about selection or form or purpose without there being some guiding principle that is doing the selecting and that life is that which is striving towards the perfection of that which selects or something like that. Yeah. And that, you know, there's every Polar bear has some par participation in perfect polar bearhood, but some deviation from it. And it's trying through, you know, life and reproduction and death and all that sort of stuff to move in that direction. As yeah. if there's some sort of final cause tractor beam. Yes, teleological. The, yeah, teolo teleological causation of the pol perfect polar bear on all polar bear kind. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in the past, what polar bears are now, what polar bears are becoming. And, you know, and that sort of thing. And like, you know, just picking polar bears because they're a fun example to think about. <laughs> but, um, but like Jesus as something like the final cause tractor beam of humanity yeah. um, that is present and active in a causal sense on all human beings. And even in some sense before he existed um, yes. as a human. And yes. that once there is this final meeting of the final form of humanity and an actual lived out flesh and blood example there's this like 
ripple effect thereafter that has fundamentally changed the relationship between the perfect abstract and the particular um, versions of things in this world. And that that is something of what I mean of the divine and human in Jesus meeting, like finally on the cross that like, well, what would happen if a human lived their life perfectly? Well, it would change the, it would recreate anew the entire universe is, mm -hmm. is the answer. And that mm -hmm. like, you can even say something like human humanity isn't, I don't mean to just like isolate all the different species or something like that. Cause there's even some relationship between humans and polar bears. Right. And what is humanity's um, role in creation? Well, we have this image of God-like role of governance, even over the polar bears and over the oak trees and everything. And so like, it's like, there's this hierarchy of cascade of final causes that all relate to each other and all hook up in humanity as our, as humankind's being the special unique creation that is the image of God in that special connection way. And so yeah. it's not just like all humans were created through Jesus when he, you know, lived his life perfectly. It's like all of everything, all of the cosmos all together because of humanity's unique special role and connection to God in the cosmos is fundamentally changed because of Jesus's life. And so I, I think about, you know, he, uh, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The second man became a life-giving spirit. It's like, what mm -hmm. in the world does that mean? And right. it's like Jesus, in some sense now, because of some union of flesh and spirit, is we have the person of Jesus in us when we believe yeah. in him. And it is like his perfect humanity is in us, but my not yet perfect humanity is still me too. And that that's what sanctification means is like that seed of the spiritual Jesus in you growing out to a to be all of you is the sort of the tension that we're in now. And mm -hmm. so when I hear like, you know, all things were made through Jesus, it's like, yes, but not in the way that you might think that Jesus was some sort of subcontractor of the higher God shaping things <laughs> back in like the big bang time or something like that. But that like Jesus in his life, when he is refusing to give into temptation to Satan is creating the world in mm -hmm. the sort of final cause spiritual sense. Well, and that's the kind of right remarkable thing, the way that in Maximus' idiom, it would be right. Like I said earlier that the uh, his activities, human and divine, are inseparable, which is kind of amazing because what's the premier divine activity if not creation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So somehow, like, like, like it's a different way of saying, I think what you're getting at, or at least there's some convergence or resonance where it's like, his his act of creating the world, however you cash that out, whether it's teleological or it's efficient, or maybe I would want to say both. Like Maximus would want to mm -hmm. say he's the archetelos, yes. also the telos, um, and he's both at once because the way God, God's form of creation, precisely because it's transcendent of any creation we know, isn't confined ultimately to seriality one way or the other. It's a whole creation, not just uh, he's at the end pulling you or he's at the beginning pushing you he's everywhere always pulling you only to the one and only act that is and uh but nevertheless it's kind of amazing to me like it's like wait so if if maximus thinks that christ's human 
activities is never separate from his divine activities, then doesn't isn't there a sense in which every human act of the life of Christ is simultaneously creating the world? Mm-hmm. Because that's his yeah. divine act, and they're not separate. Now, mm-hmm. is that mind-boggling? Yes. Is that can I can I really like clearly always image that? No. <laughs> uh, but but we get that sense, you know. Here's here's the part where words sort of sort of fail a little bit. But yeah, so yeah, no, I I think and I think this way, like however we cash it out, right? Your Christology might be emphasize things differently um, uh, than Maximus's, but one of the things that's really important, common there, is the cosmic scope. And I do have to just say, and I would suspect maybe you would agree with me here. Maybe, maybe I'll just, we'll see. But I don't think we can have a Christology today that's convincing, adequate, or, or really even persuasive or like sustainable unless you have, unless you incorporate that somehow, that dimension, that cosmic. Yes. It's just the horizons are too vast now. And it I, looks and absurd. I, yes. And I, I think that the like, there could be a, a direction that you could go and well, Jesus was just the one thing that God did for humanity to save us from our sins. Who knows what God did for those aliens over there that we right. might soon have contact yeah. with on planet XYZ. The right? C.S. Like, Lewis move. Yeah. <laughs> right. But but you know, Jesus was in some sense just like the the Lamb of God for humans. Uh right. or, or something like that. And to there could be a temptation to narrow the scope of Jesus and right. to have him basically be some sort of divine missionary for humankind uniquely. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that will cause problems. And like, I think that a lot of evangelicals still really basically just have a purely, he saved us from sin so that we go to good place instead of bad place sort of yes. Christology. And yes. like, not, I'm not saying that there isn't like, that that truth that isn't true but like it needs to hook up to bigger things and to have its fuller context fleshed out to even make sense and to yeah. really be finally compelling yeah and it's just honestly it's an amazing you know for whatever disagreements one might have with maximus it's at least just really remarkable to know that you have a 7th century byzantine greek monk <laughs> probably the last person you expect to say what i'm about to say but he's so, so completely is he convinced of the need to link up what you just said. And again, he's not living in our modern, you know, mm-hmm. post-Newtonian, post-quantum. Like, so he, he doesn't even know that pressure. But it's still amazing that he still he so completely feels the need to link the particular historical existence with the cosmic uh, activity of creation and, and all creatures that he's willing to say, as he explicitly does, that because Christ suffered in his in his passion, he also suffers, he says, quote, he suffers mystically in all the sufferings of every creature. So it's not just like so for Maximus, his 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 the scope of the incarnation's binding God to the world is so entire and complete and so particularly keyed to every individual as much as the whole sort of harmony that he himself feels personally like almost experiences in that deeper sense of suffer um the very uh things we undergo and suffer not just so he can be like hey i know like a hebrews some people the way they read hebrews like i I know what it's like too you know i went through that (laughs) um but but a far more like profound and mystical sense of not just i know what it's like 
I know what it is because I myself suffered in and with you. And I didn't suffer just to say, to be able to say that like the, the solidarity leads to the fact that I suffered me who in the one who is the, who is the lamb who looked as if he'd been slain, but I'm also the lion of Judah who has resurrected and overcome all suffering and death. I can do that in you and will do that in you. And we'll continue to do that right until the perfection of the cosmos until the sons and daughters of God are revealed. And, you know, the, the creation subject to vanity will be liberated. And so that, however we cash out our Christologies, if you don't have that dimension, I just don't see the point anymore. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, like, like in this world, it's like, what do we, because I don't know. I mean, two trillion galaxies that we can just see how many planets is that <laughs> you yeah. know uh, and, and this so. sort of cosmic vision of christ is sort of an antidote to the nihilism that might come on from thinking about the our relative size to the size of the universe or something exactly like that. right mm -hmm. yeah in fact it becomes for me at least it's become like I, I look at the stars every night it's just something i've done for especially the last three or four years when i was going through some stuff and it kind of helped me get through. And um, I always say, I've always kind of said to myself, there's no way that God creates stuff at such distances just simply to never be able to reach it. I mean, yes, there's a beauty in the distance, at the distance and blah, blah, blah. But what I now think is that it's actually my Christology, which is a sort of promise to me that there's nothing in space time, no matter how vast and how expanding it is, that is actually finally that distant from one another. And that's a mystical, that's a mystical sense. I get it. It's a weird mm -hmm. sort of, but it's Christ in all things, Colossians 3.11. And if you are in Christ, then you too will be in all things. Like you will be, you won't be distanced in that space-time way that we normally experience the world now. And actually Maximus does explicitly say that about theosis. He says, we'll transcend uh, our limits of time, the, the intervals of time and space. <laughs> Another text, a small little letter, I'm translating his letters right now. Uh, He's, he says pretty baldly, Jesus Christ came to liberate us from the world in time or from mm -hmm. nature in time. <laughs> so yeah. it's a it's a, you know, and the point, you know, it, it could be read like a super a Gnostic like, wanna, escapism. Yeah, 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 Gnostic escapism. But his point is, is precisely not that you'll transcend time to leave it behind, but so that no time will finally be separate from any other time and place. It's a unity thing. It's a unity thing. Mm -hmm. So anyway. So I guess how how would Maximus distinguish between our process of theosis and Jesus's relation between his humanity and divinity? Because in my Christology, I basically is like Jesus becomes divine so that we might too, right? And right. that while the process might be different, I don't have to be I don't have to do the perfect living thing. Right. Um, I, by grace, receive Christ in me. And so while I'm striving to do that, I don't finally need to have lived the perfect life he did to be able to uh, become what he has become. And so yeah. there's a slightly a slight difference in process, but there isn't a difference in destination. Right. Um, right. Uh, it seems to me like Maximus would still have to say there's some difference in the relationship between a theosified human and mm -hmm. um jesus because of this essential versus participative div divine distinction so i'd say yes and no actually on that um for one thing uh 
So here, here's the formula he'll use. He'll say, uh, he who is God by nature makes us gods by grace. Okay. Now the, so so the, that's that's good, right? Yeah. But then the question is, okay, so is the result different? Mm-hmm, like, is it mm-hmm. is, is being God by grace, is that less God at the end than being God by nature? And I think most people mm-hmm. would say, yeah, intuitively. Like if you're if you're naturally essentially God, that's like really, really totally God. And then anyone else who's sort of participative or piecemeal or gets there gradually, they might be really, really high or, or close or whatever, as close as as close as a creature can be. But they're never going to be fully in effect or in a result as God as God is by nature. But the kind of whole paradox and the kind of radicalized view of this of Chalcedon and Maximus is no, 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 no. That's a difference in process, if, as it were. Um, but it's not a difference in product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in fact, God's can like the so really what he would want to say is in Christ, God becomes God. So that whoever is not God can become God, too, because becoming God won't make you less God. OK, so that would be that would be the sort of yeah. right, like. And, and uh-huh. then you would and then you would say, like, well, how is that possible? He says, well, it's not possible according to our normal conceptions of God, but our normal conceptions of God simply make God what we are currently not. Oh, God isn't bound by time and space and he's eternal. And we, we think we know what that means. But those are negations. The positive affirmations are beyond any negation or mm-hmm. affirmation. Right. That's just responding to negations. And that would be the full, the fundamental mystery of Christ is that if God, who, if he who is by nature God can become God by grace by becoming a human and developing, then that means being a human by nature who has to develop by grace into God doesn't exclude you from being totally God. Mm -hmm. So, how does that not cause the multiplication of persons in the Trinity? Well, I would say so. I so the fact that Christ is God by nature as well as becomes God by grace, so that those who become God by grace can be, as it were, God by nature, but not right. They weren't fundamentally mm-hmm. God by nature. So he's subverting the process, the limits of process, to produce something more than we think the process can. I think he would say that's a, like that is a difference. Now, our tem- our immediate temptation is to say, okay, well, so then that's an asymmetry. Like, like Christ is always more God than any of the rest of us become. Well, unless the depths of the of Christ are such that He can even transcend those limits, so I would say, so I would say it's not a simple multiplication. It's not a multiplication of persons in the Trinity. If what we mean is who is God by nature, there's just three. But who becomes God in the Son, who is God by nature and God by grace? That, mm-hmm. That's infinite, infinite. So we are in Christ. There's no other way because not, of the because of the in the sunness. Yes, it's exactly. not a multiplication of persons. Yeah, so there's mm-hmm. one guy who wrote a, a book on Maximus. He even calls it specifically Christification, which mm-hmm. is deification for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you become Christ. I mean that, and I have to say, at least in the plain reading, that's. I mean, the deification's not there, but in Colossians three, right? It's Christ three eleven. Christ will become or he is and is in all things like, but it's an eschatological thing. Um, so he is all things and therefore is in all things. And therefore whoever's in him, right. Which was Colossians one 
um, there's that reciprocity that, which again is unthinkable. So he makes us God in a way that we're just as God as much as it were. I know this is sort of weird language, but as much God as God is by nature, but only because he who is God Mm -hmm. by nature can become God by grace too. It's back to that subverting the process thing. Um, I think that's the kind of radicalized, like that's how far you can think out if you're going to, if you accept Chalcedon, but think, try to think beyond it. But not a lot of people want to do that for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. It's just that in a certain way, I think, um, I don't see what the logical reasons are because anytime you try to name, well, here's why we could never be as much God as God is by nature. Then if you have the Christology that the Chalcedonians do, you're going to have to say, well, but any condition you list is also one for Christ. Otherwise, he's not human. Mm-hmm. Except sin. That's the one thing that's always the big problem. But that's that means we're not really human either. So he overcomes that too. But you can't name something like it's essential to humanity and say, well, that's an absolute barrier between humanity and theosis. No, mm-hmm. because if he's fully human. like So that that's where I would say that's the, in a sense, that's the, the necessary conceptual distinction is that he is both by nature, which enables us who become God by grace to live as if, or to become as if we're God by nature, but we're not. Mm-hmm. But that the fact that we're not doesn't ex- somehow exclude us from perfect union with he who is mm-hmm. by nature God. So it's this weird symmetrical reciprocal paradox that Chalcedon yeah. sets up just the lines too obliquely, but Maximus develops all the way down that road in a way that not every Chalcedonian will would want to. Yeah, I think I understand what you're saying. Um, I have to say, I do like Maximus because at the end of the day, I, I can't help but feel a little bit of admiration and kinship with his purpose of protecting the humanity of Jesus. Right. And even even though him and I will not come to quite the same conclusions, I feel like he's directionally correct. <laughs> um, Which is the funny thing, right? It's like the Neo-Chalcedonians, because they're trying to meet, like they're sort of conciliate with um, Miaphysites. Very mm-hmm. often I've, I've been like accused of like, you know, oh, you know, like basically you're swallowing up, you're a monist or whatever. You're swallowing up yeah. everything into this totality or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but like, why is it that the Neo-Chalcedonians or at least in that era, are are the best on things like, no, he really suffered. He really died. He really was fully human. Like all this stuff that mm-hmm. you wouldn't expect. And it's just so fascinating. Yeah, like you're saying with Maximus, you just get both both sets of convictions. However you judge the you know success or not of, of, of bringing those together, he is trying to maintain them. That's true. Yeah. And I think there's even some people out there on the internet that wish they could cut my tongue out. So, uh, you know, I, <laughs> so I'm, you have a kinship there. I, I, yeah. I'm just glad that they haven't yet. Uh, <laughs> some people might wish they could. Shut they might be waiting channel. until you're like 80. Like they Yeah. All right. Well, I should get going in just a minute. Anything else you want to close with Jordan? No, Sam, I just appreciate you inviting me on. And this is a great conversation is obviously much more we could talk about. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jordan, and uh, I'll turn off.